You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Tuesday, the 24th of August, 2021. Thank you for tuning in. Apologies a few minutes later than I would like to have started this program, but welcome, everyone. And uh, again, like last week, uh, if you were on YouTube, and this program is live on YouTube every, was it Tuesday, 9, 9 p.m. UK and Ireland time, and it is also... Um, you're going to have to just Google that wherever that is in the world, uh, wherever you are listening from. And uh, also you can listen via MegiddoRadio.com forward slash live, which is the sermon audio feed. And I think that will probably be less heavy on the bandwidth. So my guess is that generally speaking, sermon audio are very good when it comes to keeping bandwidth down and um, you know, when it comes to downloading sermons and all that kind of thing. So welcome wherever you're listening to. And we've been doing this the last couple of weeks. If you if you're in the chat, if you're on YouTube, let us know where you're listening from. It was a pretty cool experience last week finding out people listening from all over the world. That was pretty amazing. And um welcome uh, Benjamin who's listening from I, I I imagine you're listening from Dublin. Hope you're doing well. And um so on tonight's program we're going to be looking at some more questions from the Westminster Larger Catechism, and they're ki- they're around the, the topic of Jesus Christ as mediator, and they're very much centered around the fact that Jesus is true God and true man, and we're going to talk about why that is important. And, you know, in these days of uncertainty, what we need today is not the latest news, and it's not all the latest controversy that's popping up. We need positive truth to anchor us, especially when we are pushed to our limits, when things aren't going well. And it's going badly for a lot of people because of, I'm going to dub, you know, you know the, the virus going around, the C word. I'm going to just say ever since the C word has been popping over the last 18 months, things aren't going well. and um, there's a lot of fear around, there's a lot of fear mongering and people who on either side of the debate or whatever, look, to be honest, I this thing's been overhyped. I think it was a real thing last year. I think it was legitimate at the beginning to, to certain uh, restrictions and all that, but it's just, it's gone crazy. It's, you know, it should have ended about 12 months ago, but I digress. I don't think anybody's listening to me on that, but um, so we need to kind of move on from things, but things, things are difficult for people. And in times of difficulty, what we need is the truth. What we need is to know who Christ is. We need our false views of Christ and the Messiah to be confronted by the word of God and that the light would shine in darkness. So that's main reason why I want to do more of these programs, dealing with questions from the Westminster Larger Catechism if you're new to the faith, get a catechism, shorter catechism, probably if you're very new to the faith, and read through the questions, okay, and and look at them, and and I'm not I'm not saying that this is our authority, 
yes, this is our subordinate standard for those who are in pre- various Presbyterian denominations. But our authority is the Word of God, but this is a great teaching tool in order to summarize and answer a lot of the questions that new believers have. And I think a lot of people would be very surprised how practical and how helpful catechisms, various Reformed catechisms, it doesn't have to even be the shorter catechism, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is very good as well, and other things as well. Good teaching aids helping us to understand the Word of God. Now, you've got to be in the Word of God, and we've got to be reading that day in, day out, but teaching tools to help us to understand it. Now, um, also, before we begin the program, we're going to going to read uh, Psalm 43 in a second and go back to our reading of the Psalms and, and, and looking at that. I'd ask for your prayers as well. I'm going to be going to Scotland this weekend. My first time going to Scotland, actually, ever. I've never been to Scotland before, which is a strange thing to admit at the age of 37 years old and living in Northern Ireland. But anyway, um, so I'd ask for your prayers. Going to be preaching in Airdrie, Reformed Presbyterian Church up there in Scotland. And uh, really excited to go over there, flying over to Glasgow, what is on Friday, and coming back on the Monday. And really excited to preach for the folks over there. Um, so pray that the, the preaching will be edifying. And, a ble- and pray for the fellowship and that it will all go well. Um, so really excited to go over there. I've never been there before, and uh, which is a strange thing to say. Somebody who's, you know, a covenanter. It, it, those of you not aware, our covenanting history very much goes back to Scotland. And um, if you've read anything on the covenanters or the Reformed Presbyterians, it very much, well, we would say it goes back to John Knox, but, you know, even later, men like Ale- Alexander Henderson, very much centered around Scotland, some history with the the northern part of the island of Ireland, yes, but very much focused around Scotland. Now, Psalm 43, we're going to read God's word, and uh, this is a short psalm before we get into our main part, which is looking at uh, this question on 36 of the, the, the Westminster Larger Catechism. So Psalm 43, we're going to read all of this psalm and just comment on it. And it's a wonderful psalm to cry out to the Lord when uh, in trouble, in times of trouble. And we all go through times of trouble, some more, some less than others. And in those times of trouble, that's when we need to really depend upon the Lord. Now, we should depend upon the Lord at all times. But sadly, we can take our eyes off the Lord when we're not in trouble when we're not in obvious trouble. Now, uh, Psalm 43, let us hear God's word. And before we do, we're going to, um, we're just going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, Lord in heaven, we pray, O Lord, that you would bless this reading of your word. Please help us to understand it. May it be an encouragement and an anchor to us as we go through the program. Bless all the listeners and may your face shine upon each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we now pray. Amen. Psalm 43, let us hear God's word. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send you out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God, 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. So at the beginning of this psalm, it's very much vindicate me. Vindicate me, O O God. Because what do enemies do? What do those do, the deceitful and unjust man? They speak against us. Vindicate any of the lies that have been told against us. Um, welcome, Isabella from Canada. Welcome. Uh, you know, so so far we have somebody from Ireland listening in, and also we got somebody from Canada. Welcome, everybody. So, um, so the ungodly nation, and yeah, we might find that a strange thing, saying the ungodly nation, because we may look around the world and think they're all ungodly nations, and yes, they are, but very much so. This psalm and all the psalter is written in a context of what? Of the the nation being the visible church, the nation being the visible people of God on the earth, the, the, the congregation of God, uh, the congregation, you know, that word congregation or ecclesia is used in reference to Moses in Acts chapter 7. So the same idea is going on through there. And the the other nations are pagans. They're unbelievers. The only nation that are believers is the nation of Israel. And then as time goes on, more and more, the the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, the remaining tribes become more and more apostate, and then they get judged by the Assyrians. And really what's left really is only really the Davidic kingdom of the south of Judah with only one tribe really remaining there. But there's going to be times of trouble when unbelievers, when those who wish to do us harm, when they speak against us, deliver me from those people. And we should cry out to the Lord and and sing this psalm when those times come, when we need help. And then remind ourselves that God is our strength. We will feel weak because you know what? We are weak. And especially when we're going through times of distress, times when we feel stressed. And do you ever feel stressed? You know, like I months ago felt stressed during exams and things like that. You, you physically feel weak. You physically feel weak. And you feel almost abandoned. And why do you cast me off? You feel abandoned. Welcome, um, Alabama, United States. I'm guessing that's not your real name, Serendipity Girl. Okay, welcome everybody. Anyway. Um, so you feel abandoned. Why do I mourn him? Because of the oppression of the enemy. And that's the wonderful thing about the Psalms as we sing through the Psalms, as we look through the Psalms, and I'm going to play Psalm 43 there in a second, just to show anybody who is, I've never heard a Psalm being sung before because that was my experience years ago before I moved to Dublin and joined at that time a Psalm singing church. But Never had sung it before, never had any experience around it. Something that had been the normal course of church history. A cappella, singing of the Psalms. Something that had been right throughout the ages. It's only really last, you know, okay, there's been hymns for maybe over a thousand years, sure, but across church history, there's always been psalm singing. And then, Verse 3, O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle, that they would lead me 
to the presence of God and to to rejoice and to and look the joy of the Lord needs to be our strength in times like that when we, we can't depend on anything else and there's a sense in which the hardest times are often the most blessed times of fellowship with the Lord because you see more and more that this earth is not our home this is but for a season. This life is but a vapor. It is but a puff of smoke and appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Vanity of vanities, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes wrote. All is vanity. All literally puff of smoke, puff of smoke, puff of smoke of puffs of smokes. It's just so, it's gone. You know, we, the older we get, the more we, we feel that. I am 37 years old, and in my head, I still feel young. I still think I'm in my 20s. I still think I'm in my early 20s in my head, and I'm not. <laughs> I get reminded of that when I look in the mirror. But life goes so quickly, doesn't it? And we need, as we go through difficulty, as our, fa as our, as our health fails us, as all things go, can appear to go wrong at times, we trust in the Lord, and He is our joy. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. My, the help of my countenance. He is our only hope. And if you don't trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you will stand before the judge of all the earth, clothed in your own robes. Robes of your own making, but sadly, my friend, they are filthy rags. And they fall short of the glory of God. And they will be judged as objects of wrath. You will be judged as an object of wrath unless you are in Christ Jesus. Unless he is your exceeding joy. Unless you can come before him. And the only way you come before him in joy, the only way you come before him praising him is if you are in Christ. If he is your mediator. Otherwise, unless you see him as true God and true man and love that, and love him, he's not going to be your joy, he's not going to be your praise, and he's not going to be the help of your countenance. Amen. So, now we're going to look over to the Westminster Larger Catechism, and we're going to begin with question 36 and go through some of these questions, hoping, not exactly sure where we'll end up, but I think we'll probably go from questions 36 to 42. It's possible we might finish a tiny bit early today. I'm not ex entirely sure. Um, oh, I promised I would do something, and I just remembered what I was going to do. Before before we get into the Westminster Larger Catechism, I'm going to play, this is only two minutes long, and if you've never heard psalm singing before, I urge you to go to this website, there we go, on the screen, um, soundcloud.com, I think um, there's a main website to this as well, it's, I think it's the psalmsong.org or something like that, but if, if you type in, in Google, uh, singing the psalms, you're likely to find psalms recorded by Connor Quigley, who lives in Scotland. And uh, he records, I think he records it himself. 
if I'm not mistaken. And we're just going to play one of these recordings. Urge you to, to check this out. Buy a Psalter. These, see these here? They're available from Trinitarian Bible Society and other places. These are cheap. They're not... Some Psalters are a bit more expensive, some translations, but the metrical, Scottish Metrical Psalter of 1650, you can get it for cheap, it's not expensive, and you can sing the Psalms in meter. You can't really sing your prose version in your Bible. So we're going to play this, and going to show you the words on the screen in front of you, and so you can follow along. So now, having said that, I'm no expert when it comes to tunes, but you can get easier tunes than that and usually be in common meter. Um, but the, 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 16, the 1650s, pretty easy to sing at home, I'll be honest, uh, compared to some. And um, so that's of the 1650, if you can pick that up from Trinitarian Bible Society. So again, yeah. It, it is amazing. And you know what, right? If you can't find a, a psalm singing church around you, perhaps you could get one or two other Christians. Just say say to a buddy of yours or something like, hey, would you like to come over to listen and sing psalms? And um, pray. Just It doesn't have to be for very long. It can be like for 10 minutes or whatever. Um, and I'm sure it would lift up your souls. And I would encourage you also, if you can, go visit a psalm singing church. It might be in a Sabbath evening or something like that when you're not going to your own church. And um, look into the issue. And if nothing else, I, I have friends of mine not completely convinced of the exclusive somebody position and I'm in contact with them and things like that. And I, sell them, I send them bits of information and things like that. But 
at least sing the psalms. Start off singing the psalms and go study the issue. And uh, may the Lord bless you if you are studying through that issue. Now, Psalm, uh, not Psalm, uh, question 36 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. And how, how long are we into the program now? Okay, we're 20 minutes into the program, but uh, hopefully that, that'll encourage you to um, hear the Psalms. I think some people for the first time maybe ever have heard the Psalms being sung. You know, with... Sometimes when you hear the Psalms being sung, it's not a, it's kind of a bit of a paraphrase and it's a very loose translation, so loose it's almost like a hymn. Uh, so the 1650s, a solid translation of the, of the original Hebrew, really. Now, question 36 of the Westminster Larger Catechism reads as follows. Who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? Who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? Now, we talked about the covenant of grace last uh, three programs ago. So, not going to go back everything over everything there, but just before the fall of Adam and the whole human race in Adam, there was what theologians call the covenant of works. Now, this is just to help us to understand the relationship between God and men. Now, there's other things you can go into as well, the nature of grace and all that kind of thing. But this is the principle by which God and man continued in relationship, where man remained in a state of blessedness in the Garden of Eden, and it was based upon continuous, perfect, personal obedience to God. That's why it's called the covenant of works. Now, as soon as sin came in, now, Adam was created mutable. Mutable means he could change. But as soon as sin came in, that relationship changed. And it could never be based upon obedience anymore because our greatest deeds are but filthy rags. Our relationship changed immediately after sin came into the garden. And now what came in in Genesis 3.15 was the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman referring to Christ. So... From that point on, the relationship was by grace. And this is why we call it the covenant of grace. Immediately after that point, going right back to Genesis 3, you see it with Cain and Abel. Abel is righteous. Cain kills his brother, of course. And Seth is then born later in the Genesis account, and we're told that um, the godly seed they continued to trust in the promise of the, the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That is called the Proto-Evangelion, the kind of like the, the, the gospel. The gospel is there in seed form in Genesis 3.15. They believed in the Messiah that would come. They looked forward. Did they know as much as us about the Messiah? No, but they still trusted in the Messiah. How much they understood or whatever is immaterial. They believed and trusted upon the promise of God that the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. That was Jesus Christ. They believed that God would provide a lamb. The promise related to Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac, his son. And Abraham tells his son, I will, uh, no, not God, I will. God will provide a lamb. 
he provided in, in his son. So from that point onwards, from the, the fall onwards, the relationship between God and sinful men was by grace and by grace alone. Otherwise, there was no relationship. There's no blessed relationship between God and man. So that's the covenant of grace. And now who is the mediator? Who is the, the one who represents both parties in that relationship? Because put it like this, look at the problem here. Sinners coming before a holy and righteous God. Can you think of a problem? What do sinners deserve? Can we just approach God in our sinfulness? Imagine the terror that the Israelites, the people of God, had at the, at the base of Mount Sinai. As the thunders roared, as the earthquakes around the mountains. And that's just a taste of what it is to come into the presence of God. So, there's a problem here. Someone sinless, and someone also a man. He had to be a man. But he also had to be God. To mediate between the two parties that were estranged from each other and bring about reconciliation. And this is where, um, I think, that, you know, there's a Latin phrase, vero homo, vero... I can't remember. I'm, I'm useless to Latin. I'm not even going to pretend. But true God and true man. That's the saying. True God and true man. I'm not a big fan of people saying, you know, people say 100% God, 100% man. I know what people mean, and they're not wrong in some sense, but the problem is when you, when you use percentages, there's no such thing as 90% man. You know, I, I think that's the problem that some people would have with that. You have a he is true God in every sense of the word and true man. And the answer here in question 36 is the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only mediator. He had to be God. He had to be man. The only mediator. Who, it says, being the eternal son of God, of one substance and equal with the father, in the fullness of time between men, and so was and continues to be God and man, in two entire distinct natures, and one person forever. Let's break this down now. Um, again, look, catechism is not our authority. This is just godly minds coming together and saying, we believe this is what the scripture plainly teaches, and I believe if you go through this, it will give you a firm foundation that when you're, you're bombarded with false teaching on the internet and all sorts of other things, that you have, you have a greater idea of what the truth sounds like. I mean, it took hundreds of years for the church really to settle upon a clear, a clear, distinct, nuanced statement where all the heresies and all the potential for going wrong on the nature, on the personhood of Christ, on the two natures of Christ, 
It's not that the truth wasn't there. It was there from day one. It's just when, when the errors started to creep in, they didn't quite know how to put their finger on it. And that was kind of part of the problem. And what made them more precise was when the, the errors came along. And they came along. Um, Council Nicaea was one example where they dealt with that. Um, so, the only mediator, uh, not Mary, not the saints, there's no other mediator between God and man. No one else can represent us before God. Not possible. He is God. He is man. Sinless. So he can represent us before God. Who, it says, being the eternal son of God, easy, the, you know, never changes in terms of his deity, of one substance and equal with the Father, he is not lesser, ontologic, I'm trying to use big words, but he is not lesser in his being than his Father or the Holy Spirit. They are equal. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. And these three are one. We might say, I, I don't understand that. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, God is kind of beyond our comprehension. And the moment we start bringing God down to our understanding and our level, we've created an idol. We have to go by what has been revealed and shown to us. And we know from examples of, you know, the Trinity, God the Father speaks of God the Son in, in Mark 1. This is my beloved Son in, who, in whom I am well pleased. Who is he speaking of? And it's clear from the scriptures that the Son is referred to as kurios, the Lord. That is the Greek translation of the word Jehovah in Hebrew. So, it's equal with the Father. In the fullness of time, Became man. Now he became man. He wasn't from eternity man. He became man. And John 1 deals with that. John 1, 1 to, 4, 1 to 14 really deals with it. The word became flesh. The word is eternal. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Always God, but became man. And so was and continues to be God. So at no time did he stop being God at, at any, any point along this, okay? And he'll continue to be man. In two entire distinct natures, these are these natures, he's his deity and his manhood, he's, his humanity. God and man, and these are distinct natures. They're not mixed together in, in a pot. The, do we completely understand these things? And we've got to be honest with ourselves. We don't. And once we get down to the level of, oh, yeah, that's how that works mechanically. This is not God we're talking about anymore. This is a miracle. The word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word, the logos, 
one person. That's also important. We're not talking about split personalities or anything. One person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you get into all the errors that popped up. But if you believe that, you've de- you've dealt with the first 500 years of Christian heresy. Equal with the Father. Dealt with during the Nicene Council. Um, he, two distinct natures. They're distinct from each other. True God and true man. But one person. One person forever. Now, question 37. If you have any question, if you have any question, please ask. Please feel free to ask. Yes, um, and one listener makes a good comment. Christ can be seen in the Old Testament. Yes. Um, Psalm 2 talks about the anointed one. And the anointed one if you translate, you could also translate the Christ. So, you see, when in the New Testament they called him the Christ, they were calling him the Messiah. This was not like his surname or anything. This was, are you the anointed one? The one prophesied. The, 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 the king, the son of David that was prophesied that would come. Also, there's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Um, so Christ could clearly be seen. The Messiah, the second person of the triune God, could clearly be seen definitely in the Old Testament. Now, was it as clear as it is in the New Testament? No. And, you know, there's, there's references as well. Let us make man in our own image. I think it was is it Genesis one twenty six, And that really talks to different members of the triune God. Much clearer, of course, in the New Testament, in various parts of the New Testament. Now, question 37. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Now, I'd also point out as well, the name Jesus was given to Christ as man. He was given the name Jesus. He, the Christ, is eternal. He became man. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. His body wasn't a phantom or anything like the Gnostics believe. It was a true body. Nothing wrong with the flesh. Nothing wrong at all with the flesh. Adam and Eve were created holy, just and upright, except sadly they sought out many inventions. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us. Being conceived by the power of the Holy, holy Ghost... Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. In some way, the Spirit of Almighty God came upon Mary, and she became pregnant. His child, or, uh, sorry, her child. A miraculous conception. I know we talk about the, the miraculous birth, but it's really the miraculous conception. The, the conception, the, the fact that she became pregnant without knowing a man, that is miraculous. That is incredible. The rest of it is very much, by the act of providence, a normal pregnancy. I speak, speaking reverently now, trying to be very careful with my words, but a normal pregnancy. Born of her, yet without sin. Again, but he was sinless. 
Question 38 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says this. Why was it requ request that the mediator should be God? Uh, it, the answer is it was request requisite, sorry, requisite, <laughs> that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God. And we've kind of dealt with this already, actually. And this is obviously saying it much better than I could in my own words, to be honest. And the power of death. So this is why. This is why you have to be God to be mediator. To keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God. It's the only way we could approach before God. Give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession. So why is the sufferings, the obedience and intercession worth so much? If if it was a kind of a case of, let, let's think about if someone died in someone else's place, but how would that one death of, say, a person cover the sins of all those who would ever believe, who would ever trust in Jesus Christ? How would it have enough value and worth and efficacy to, to satisfy the sin of all who would trust in him? Because he was God. Because of who he was. I'll give you an analogy. If, you know, to a nation, if there's a king and a soldier, which one has more value to the nation? Well, the death of the king, and they'll try to protect the king you know, just say you're on the battlefield, and I'm thinking about battlefields from centuries ago, if the king is killed in battle, usually what will happen is the army will, might lose resolve and try to run back and everything else like that. So the, there's more value put on the, the king, the life of the king, than other people. Now, take that to infinity and beyond, okay? When it comes to God, his worth and efficacy of his sufferings, his obedience and intercession, because he's God. No one else, no one else in any way, shape, or form could have done what he did and brought the same value and atonement. No one else, not possible. And to, ta and to satisfy God's justice, it says in, in, um, in the 38th question, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people or particular or, or special people, be that in modern English, purchase a, a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies and bring them to everlasting salvation. And those enemies include death. Death is an enemy and deliver them from their enemies that they might serve him without fear. This is why, dear friends, we can serve God, and we should serve God without fear. Because if you are in Christ, he's conquered your enemies. Uh, if you look at uh, Luke 1, ver uh, verse uh, 68, down to, just read to 74, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, that we should... Uh, verse 71, that we should be saved 
from our enemies and from the hand of all the haters, verse 74, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. That Verse 74 of Luke 1, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Question 39. Again, don't be shy. If anybody's joined the the chat in YouTube or wherever you're listening from, if you would let us know where you're listening from. Uh, so far, we've got people listening from Ireland, Canada, the United States, and I think that's it. Not too sure. People, other people are being shy and not letting us know anyway. So um, welcome if you've joined us in the last few minutes. And uh, and don't be afraid to ask any questions. If there's something I haven't explained properly, and there's a good chance of that, don't be afraid to ask me in the, in, in the chat. Okay, and uh, I don't mind going back. Or even if there's something kind of related, you know, if it's completely off the beaten track, um, maybe, you know, like, it's not really related to the, this topic, I don't mind answering it at the end of the program within reason, as long as I have a decent answer to give you. Um, I think sometimes you got to be careful. Uh, okay, so question 39. Why was it re requisite that the mediator should be a should be man. Now we're getting to we've dealt with why he should be God. Now why he should be man. Now the answer is it was requisite that the mediator should be man that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling for infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. So, it's also important, there were errors in the early church, in their zeal, in their misdirected zeal, that they went in the direction of downplaying the humanity of Christ. And we might not think that is as serious as the other error, but it is. Well, it's denying what the scriptures plainly teach about him, but at the same time, it has massive implications. Because if he wasn't true man, he could not represent us before God. He can't to to represent men, he needed to be a man. To be the second Adam, he Adam was a man. He didn't come to save angels who fell. He came to save the seed of Abraham. And it says here, advance our nature. He took on the seed of Abraham. Perform obedience to the law. Now, very often people you know, say, Jesus washed away my sins, and that is true if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, but you haven't just been given a blank slate. The, the, the scriptures say that the just shall live by faith. The just, not the morally neutral. The righteous, it, it gives a, and that's not, there's a sense in which it's to do with the works, but in standing before God, it's only a person who is righteous can stand before him. Now you say, how is that possible? Well, 
We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So when God looks upon us, he doesn't see our broken, our, our, the, the broken law of God, or broken covenant or whatever else. There's been satisfied, the penalty of sin has been paid. But not only that, the law has been obeyed perfectly. So that when God looks upon us in Christ Jesus, by faith in him alone, he sees a lawkeeper. He sees someone who has obeyed the law in every single point, who has loved God in every moment of his life. Because that's what the law commands. This is why none can be saved by the law, because it's an impossible standard for anybody but Christ to achieve. Perfect personal obedience. You see, remember I was talking about the, 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 the covenant of works. And there's a sense in which the covenant of works went away and didn't go away, if you know what I mean. There's two ways we can have relationship with God, and it is perfect righteousness of our own, and obviously we fail, each and every one of us, because we're in Adam. In Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, where Adam failed, he broke the law of God. Now, that was the positive law, which represented the, the summarization of the law found in the Ten Commandments, written in the heart of man. Okay, written in the heart of man. It was written later in, in, in tablets of stone, but it was, it was there. That, that's the eternal law, summarized down. I remember one time I heard um, the Ten Commandments, you know, it said, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Well, to condescend to our level, what did God do? He simplified the law down, and I heard this great analogy, I think it was from Sinclair Ferguson, that you don't explain all the dangers of electricity to a small child. You just say, don't stick your hand in the socket. You might expand it as time goes along, and God does. So the summarization of the law is in the Ten Commandments, and another summarization of the law is the, to, love your, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's another summarization of the same law, same law. <coughs> and there's this one stipulation in the Garden of Eden to not eat of the, fr the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And by eating of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, you show a lack of love towards God. And you also show a lack of love towards your neighbor because you bring them under the wrath of God through your disobedience. Sin is not loving. Rebellion against God is not loving because God is love. He's the very definition of love. And Jesus said in the New Testament, what did he say? If you love me, Keep my commandments. And the same message in the, the Old Testament as well, by the way. How often the prophets say, turn from your evil ways. Keep my statutes and my judgments and you shall live. Same message. Repent from your evil ways. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The seed will come. And what does that look like? Keep my commandments. Keep my statutes. Repentance. What does it look like? It looks like obedience. The works never saved anyone, Old Testament or New Testament. And so what was required was that a man, had to be a man, would obey the law of God in place of us. 
suffer and make intercession in our nature, have a fellow feeling of infirmities and, you know, our weaknesses. Um, and that's very much, um, where's the reference there? There's a reference there down here. For we have not a high priest. This is uh, Hebrews 4.15. For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with our feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Now, he wasn't, Jesus was not tempted with sin. If you look at the temptations of Christ in the book of Matthew, in the book of Luke, he was tempted with hunger. There's nothing, like, that's a natural desire. He was tempted with all the all the kingdoms of the world. Why? Because they all belonged to him. That's why it was tempting. Um, he was tempted to test God because Satan twisted one of the Psalms it's a partial truth. God will protect you if you throw yourself down. But he, you know, he, he responded with the word of God: "You shall, thou shall not tempt the Lord your God." So, and he was hungry, tired, distressed, didn't have sinful desires. I think we, people got to be very careful with this as well because this has been messed up with the LGBT community stuff and some of the. Um, uh, who was it again? I think it was T the gospel coalition. I think there was some people, not, not everybody in the gospel coalition, but some people in the gospel coalition in an effort to kind of say, Jesus sympathizes with you and all this kind of thing that he had these struggles. It, it goes into blasphemous territory. And I think people struggle to, he was tempted at all points. Yeah the physical infirmities, not, not sinful desires, not sinful desires, natural cravings that are in and of their own selves. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. It's when you take it too far. There's nothing wrong with desiring something that belongs to you. So any of the desires that Jesus had were not sinful at all. But this is still true, for we have a high priest which cannot be touched with our feelings or infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are. He was tempted in all points, yet without sin. He suffered. He was pushed to the limit. He went out right after his baptism, straight into the wilderness, suffered, and through submitting to the word of God, rather than the temptations of the devil, through suffering, had victory over the devil. He went forth conquering in a way that they were not expecting in the first century, were they? They were looking for a some kind of leader to, to kick out the Romans and to be powerful. This is what the, you know, the Pharisees would have been looking for and all this kind of stuff. But he came. To suffer. We see it in, in Matthew chapter 16. Peter struggled with this idea. He rebuked Christ when Christ told him that he came to suffer and die and on the third day rise again from the dead. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus had to rebuke Peter. He came to show them, he came to suffer. And through his suffering, he had victory over the enemy. 
through being a servant. Completely counterintuitive, isn't it? We think of a conquering king as going forward, you know, a mighty king. We don't think of him in terms of a servant. But he came to suffer. He served. He served God. The perfect model of what we all should be in our discipleship with God. Of course, we fail. Now, where do we finish off there a second ago? That we might receive the adoption of sons, and that is a tremendous blessing. So far, you know, we 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 so often skip over the blessing of being adopted. Adoption is a blessing, something you could quite honestly spend a whole series preaching on, meditating on, just because we've been found righteous in Christ and we have a relationship with God. The, the 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 blessing of adoption being counted as sons heirs according to the promise is an is a privilege an extra privilege bestowed upon us treated as a son as an heir of the kingdom it's incredible we can't even get our minds around it treated like could somebody who earned it. But we've been grafted in. It's all by grace, all by mercy, to something so wonderful, so special. And if we could get our heads around this, if we get the not just the, the horrors of hell, but also the wonders of Christ's kingdom, would we not tell more people? Would we not evangelize more? Would we not work harder to, while we're on this earth, that we look towards our eternal home and that all the suffering that we endure in this earth, we take it much more joyfully had we that knowledge in our minds. So, so the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with the boldness unto the throne of grace. Question 40. We'll try and get through up to 42. That's, that's That was my goal at the beginning of this program. So, question 40. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and men in one person? Answer, it was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied upon, relied on by us as the works of the whole person. It had to be one person. It couldn't be like two different people. It had to be one person, accepted by one person, accepted by God for us. Now, why was our mediator called Jesus? Now, I'm going to just quote here from J.G. Voss. He's got a very good anything I've read so far and has been very good uh, on the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is a commentary on it. It's published by uh, P&R Publications. Very useful uh, on the Westminster Larger Catechism, a little commentary on it. But in this, he talks about the title or the name of Jesus. And the, the question again, just to remind, uh, the question, uh, should have read question 41 first. Why was our mediator called Jesus? And the answer is our mediator was called Jesus because he saveth his people from their sins. 
Now, and the scripture references uh, Matthew one twenty one. Now, what is the literal meaning of the name Jesus? The name Jesus means the name Jesus is Greek from corresponding to the name Joshua, Jehoshua, meaning Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. That's what the question is really referring to. And that's what the name means. Jehovah is salvation. Our mediator was called Jesus because he saved his people from their sins. And uh, if you look at uh, Matthew 1, 21. Uh, let's see there. Does it have it at the bottom of this page? Here we go. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. You know, the name. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now, the last question, question 42, and it'll be our last one for this, for this evening, and then a week or two, we'll probably, we'll go back and do more. Why was our mediator called Christ? Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of his church in the estate, both of his humiliation and exaltation. And I'm going to deal with that prophet, priest, and king probably in a separate show. Um, oh, welcome and welcome, David. Uh, thank you for that. That's really, really encouraging. Hopefully it, it is uh, a help to you. And uh, again, if there's something I haven't explained properly, which is entirely possible... Yeah, you know, um, if there's anything I've skipped over, gone through it too quickly, please let me know. Miguelradio um, at gmail.com. Uh, there's a question that has come up to do with the name of Jesus. Um, you know, some people call him Yeshua. <sighs> you know, I think there's a danger getting caught up with names. Um, why do I say that? Because, you know, people say, is it, you know, literally the J sound is not an A, is is not even in Greek. If you want to say, his real name is this. Well, if you really want to um, take the name Jeremiah in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it has no problem saying the word Jeremias. There, there's different forms of names in different languages. And um, this whole thing about you have to use a certain name is not even borne out by scripture. Um, you know, you have to do it a certain way. Uh, you know, like the, the name for the divine name, you know, people debate whether it's Jehovah or Yahweh or whatever. Um, I don't really believe it's Yahweh, but whatever, but the, you know, it's translated Lord and capital L O R D capital Lord. Okay. So, Septuagint says, Kurios for Lord. New Testament, Kurios. It's the same thing. It's just words can be translated different ways. Is it wrong to use the name Elohim or uh, Jehovah or um, drink of other, Yehoshua or, you know, Yeshua or whatever, or different forms of it? No, but 
it can get a little cultic over time. And especially when people say it's needed and that's not his real name. Well, then you're, you know, Judah is called Judea in the New Testament. There's different ways of spelling it. There's different ways of it's translated from Hebrew into Greek and things like that. So the, the, the biblical writers have no problem giving the different forms of this. And I, I completely sympathize. I know that some people who believe in this stuff, they're zealous. They just want to be faithful. And they, they mean well, a lot of them. Okay. But just be very, very careful with that kind of stuff. It, not wrong per se, but then when people do it and they think everybody else is wrong and not even, or might even go to the extreme of saying, you're not believing in the true God or something like that. So hopefully that helps. Hopefully that helps. So, um, now question 42. So the name Christ basically means anointed one, anointed one. If you go back, I mentioned Psalm two there before, just to give you an idea, this Christ is the, it's got the idea of anointed with oil. And Psalm 2 says this, why do, the, why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, against his Christ. Okay, saying. So, um, the Messiah, the one who would deliver his people. He has been equipped by the Holy Spirit above measured, set apart by the Holy Spirit. And, and the picture of the anointing of oil is the picture kind of of the enabling or the equipping of the Spirit of Almighty God. It's also put upon the kings. You see the Old Testament kings because they were, and, you know, there was this kind of enabling spirit upon them. Also, there was this kind of enabling spirit upon, um, I'm trying to think, some of the judges in the book of Judges, Samson, things like that. So it's got this picture of anointing. It can also kind of refer to believers as well. Um, but, you know, like, but here it's referring to the Messiah, the Christ. He is the anointed one, set apart, the Son of God, fully furnished with all authority and ability to exercise the offices of prophet, priest, and king. We'll get into that later, really. But he is a prophet. He preaches. Priest, he intercedes. He offers himself as a sacrifice for his, the sins of the nation, the sins of the people. Um, and he's a king. He's the king of the church, king of the church, king of the state as well. But here it's referring to the church. Um, in the estate, both of his, both of his humiliation. When he was on the earth, that was the state of his humiliation. And then when he rose from the dead, that's the state of his exaltation. So that's humiliation and exaltation. Um, just a little comment by uh, J.G. Voss. And the more I read J.G. Voss, the more I like him. Um, I think he was a, from what I know, he was a Reformed Presbyterian as well. It's probably why I like him so much. But anyway, I'm biased. So, 
J.G. Voss wrote this, son of Gerhard, the more famous Gerhardus Voss. Number one, is Christ a name or a title? Christ is not a name, but a title which accompanies the personal name Jesus. This is brought out by the use of the definite article Christ, which occurs in some places, such as Matthew 16, 16. Thou art the, the Christ. You are the anointed one, the son of the living God. He also said this. What is the literal meaning of the word Christ? Christ is the English form of the Greek Christos, which means anointed. Thus, whether we say that Christ, or that, sorry, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, or the anointed one, is a matter of language, not of meaning. These words all mean the same thing. In the passage in the Old Testament, where the word anointed occurs with reference to the coming Redeemer, such as Psalm 2.2, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The Hebrew word Messiah could equally correctly be translated by the word Christ for the meeting is the same. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. So, um, so if you have any questions, here would be the time to shout it out uh, just before we hit the, hit the exit music. Uh, thank you guys so much for the comments. Uh, that has been really encouraging. And, and I know that, you know, at this time, there, I think at the beginning of this whole virus period, last 18 months, I think at the beginning, there was a lot of sympathy out there for people, people being isolated. I kind of think in a lot of areas that sympathy has kind of gone out the window and we've kind of become used to it or whatever, but apathetic towards it or whatever. There's people going through much worse, I think, today than they were 18 months ago. Some people are getting through it, and some people it's much worse. So keep people in prayers. Try to seek people out. It's not easy for everybody, especially when people perhaps don't have families around them or whatever the case may be. And um, I really, really appreciate the the comments in the YouTube chat. It's great encouragement to me, personally. And uh, if you are listening to this after the fact, you can check out this program Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. when I'm being good, <laughs> actually on time. So 9 p.m. UK time. You're just going to have to Google when that is in your time zone. And you can ask questions during the program and, um, and tell us where you're listening from and other things like that. And... Thank you so much for everybody listening and thank you so much for the comments and for your prayers. Again, preaching in a couple of days in Scotland would appreciate your prayers uh, for both the Sabbath morning service in Airdrie, Reformed Presbyterian Church, and also for the evening service in that church as I prepare for the rest of this week. Thank you so much. This has been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all. <laughs>